Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program and we're in Chapter 5, which is titled The Eightfold Path, The Path for All Humans to Enlightenment. This is where you learn the teachings of the Buddha that are going to guide you to enlightenment as a core and central teaching. If you're interested in getting to the enlightened mental state where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, having focus, concentration, clarity of mind, deep memory, getting to the point where you no longer experience any discontent feelings and your personal professional relationships will really blossom, you're going to need to know the Eightfold Path, inside and out, backwards, forwards. If you've studied this before, you're going to need to study it multiple times in your journey to enlightenment and revisiting it. I'm going to be using the original words of the Buddha in order to help you understand the Eightfold Path because it's using the words of the Buddha that are going to help you to understand what he did teach and what he didn't teach. And that's how you inform your practice to do the learning. But remember, you're not believing his teachings. You're learning his teachings. Then you're reflecting on them to independently verify them. And then you're practicing in order to transform the mind. It's the Eightfold Path that is going to transform your mind to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So I'd like to welcome all of you guys and invite you to join for today's class and invite you to also ask any and all questions that you like as we're going through the class. You can ask questions by putting those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or if you're in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions that you like. If you haven't already gotten a version of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, it's really wise to get a version of this. You can download it for free on our website at buddhadailywisdom.com. There you'll see the link for free books and you can download it and read it on an electronic device if you like. You can take it and go print it. Or there's also links that will take you to Amazon so that you can order printed versions if you'd like to have a printed version. So I'm going to use some visual aids to help us so that you can learn the words of the Buddha and I can guide you in understanding the path to enlightenment, which is the Eightfold Path. The first thing to understand is that the Eightfold Path is organized into three individual sections. These three individual sections are referred to as wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. This is how we organize the Eightfold Path so that you can break it down and you can understand what you're looking to accomplish in each one of these individual steps. So I'm going to introduce you and refresh your memory to right view because right view we learned that last week in our class that was the three universal truths the four noble truths establishing right view but i'm just going to do a little bit of a recap on that today but then we're going to be spending the bulk of our time talking about right intention right speech right action right livelihood right effort right mindfulness and right concentration 
So right view in the Eightfold Path using the words of the Buddha is described in this way. These are his words. He says, and what monks is right view? It is monks, the wisdom of discontentedness, the wisdom of the cause of discontentedness, the wisdom of the elimination of discontentedness, and the wisdom of the way of practice to the elimination of discontentedness. This is called right view. So here, what the Buddha is doing is he's pointing to the Four Noble Truths, and he's saying that is right view, because the Four Noble Truths is an entire teaching all to itself. And here below the line of the visual aid that I'm using, you can see the top section of the Four Noble Truths. Below this, there's a lot more content that the Buddha shares on the Four Noble Truths. But here I'm just showing you the connection between the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths, because I share that the Eightfold Path is this core central teaching where the Four Noble Truths plug into it, the Five Precepts plug into it, and other teachings plug into it. So here, once you understand that right view is the Four Noble Truths, then you would need to go understand and study the Four Noble Truths and practice that in order to be able to develop your practice around right view. So the first part to understand right view in the Four Noble Truths is to understand the three universal truths. And I taught this last week. And if you have the book or you've watched other resources, maybe YouTube videos or podcasts where I share the Four Noble Truths, I will typically be teaching the three universal truths prior to that because these are building blocks to be able to help you understand the Four Noble Truths. I taught you the universal truth of impermanence last week where you've learning about conditioned objects that arise, they change, and then they fade away. That everything around you, all these material objects are all impermanent. That there isn't this steady, constant thing. All these material things around you, your relationships, your body, the weather, your bank accounts, all these different things are impermanent. So things are going to arise, they're going to change, and they're going to fade away. This is a very important understanding that you need to be able to see the truth in this. You're not believing it. You're looking around the world and reflecting and seeing that, yes, this is indeed a universal truth. And if you need to go around the world and try to disprove this by attempting to find something that's permanent, this is a way for you to verify that it's true. So when you're walking down the sidewalk and you see a crack, that's impermanence. If you look at a fence and the paint is fading, that is impermanence. If you're walking down the street and you are not hearing anything and it's quite quiet outside, but then somebody honks the horn or a bird chirps, this is all impermanence because the sound of silence is not permanent. Then I introduce you to the universal truth of discontentedness so that you could understand conditioned feelings. The conditioned feelings are pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. This is where you're understanding that the unenlightened mind is forming feelings based on some condition. So if it's sunny outside, you might get happy or excited. But then because the sun is impermanent, now the mind moves to the painful feelings. When you see it's raining outside or there's some other weather that is displeasing to you, you might experience the anger or frustration or irritation or some other painful feeling. And then there's these neither painful nor pleasant feelings like dissatisfaction or uncomfortableness or being displeased. This is all the discontent feelings. And this is explaining what the unenlightened mind is experiencing, that there's these conditioned feelings that the mind is forming its inner feelings on some condition. 
the feeling is going to arise, it's going to change, and it's going to fade away. This is why you haven't been able to get to permanent happiness yet because you're forming your happiness based on some condition. And as long as you form your happiness on some condition, when that condition changes, then your happiness is going to fade away because it's impermanent. Because the condition of certain amount of money in your bank account, the sun is out, your mom calls you today, your boss does one thing or another. If you form your inner feelings based on a condition, when that condition changes, then your feeling's gonna change away from the pleasant feeling into the painful feeling. So what you're doing on this path to enlightenment is eliminating the conditioned feelings and getting to this unconditioned mental state of peacefulness and joy where the mind is just always happy because in the unenlightened state there's this condition needs to be met this condition needs to be met this condition needs to be met and then you'll be happy but in the enlightened mental state you're beyond all of that the mind is unconditioned you can maintain your peace and your joy no matter what's happening around you then I taught you the universal truth of non-self where you're learning about how the mind clings to the body and the mind or the self-image and the self-identity, thinking that this is who you are as a person. And now if you hear agreeable or disagreeable things related to the self-image or self-identity, you'll experience discontentedness. So if you hear somebody compliment the way you appear, the way you look, you might get pleasant feelings like happy or excited. Or then if somebody says something degrading and disparaging, you might get frustrated or agitated. Or if you spill something on your clothing, you might get embarrassed. This is all because of personal existence view. Or if you have a certain self-identity like I am American, or I am a Buddhist teacher, or I am a husband, or I am a father, I am a wife, I am a boyfriend, I'm a girlfriend. All of these I am's in the mind, this is the self-identity that the unenlightened mind will oftentimes cling to. And now once again, your mind can go up and down and be shaken up if somebody says all Americans are this, or all Americans are that, and you know something really disparaging, then if you hear anything about your culture, your ethnicity, your sexual orientation, any roles that you fulfill in the world, if you've identified with this is who you are as a person, now it's easy for your mind to get shaken up. Then I explained to you the definition of craving desire attachment, helping you to understand this mental longing for something with a strong eagerness, the mind pulling in the direction of the objects of its affection, also known as expectations or wants or holding or grasping or clinging. This is the mind chasing after something, thinking the next new shiny object waiting around the corner is gonna provide some kind of lasting satisfaction. So if you've ever been to the mall and you were like, oh, a new pair of shoes or oh, a new phone or new computer, new video game, a new purse, new this, new that, you know, the mind chasing after things. It's not the object itself that is the craving, desire, attachment. It's the mental longing inside the mind. So you need to understand this definition of craving, desire, attachment, how the mind pulls towards things and chases things, wanting those pleasant feelings. And now you understand the Four Noble Truths, that the first Noble Truth is explaining the problem. The problem in the unenlightened mind is that it's experiencing discontentedness, these conditioned feelings, the mind going up and down and up and down and up and down. This is the problem that the unenlightened mind is experiencing. Then there's the second noble truth, which is the discontentedness is caused 
by our cravings, desires, attachments, because the mind wants everything to be permanent when everything in the world around you is impermanent. So it's those cravings, desires, attachments, chasing after things that if you get what you want, you get pleasant feelings. And if you don't get what you want, you get painful feelings. But because of impermanence, you can't permanently get what you want. So therefore, the mind's going to end up in these painful feelings at some point. So if you remember back to the example I gave you, like when you got together with a boyfriend or girlfriend, initially you might have gotten these pleasant feelings where you were so excited that somebody was showing an interest in you and they were maybe inviting you out to the movies or to dinner or you might have had sexual contact or something like this and you got all these pleasant feelings based on this affection that you were getting. But then when the relationship was over and it ended, now you were sad or or feeling lonely or bored or you're frustrated or angry. This is because the mind's craving for this relationship to be permanent, when in reality, it was always impermanent. The unenlightened mind just didn't understand that. So the same way to say that the mind is craving permanence is to say that the mind does not like impermanence. And whenever the mind experiences this change, then it gets shaken up because it's having these cravings. So you're looking to get to this stable and steady mind. And as long as you're craving and craving for things to be permanent, you're living in this impermanent world. So as long as your mind's craving permanence, you're going to get your mind shaken up. And that's the discontentedness. So the discontentedness is caused by that mental longing, strong eagerness, the cravings, desires, attachments. The third noble truth is explaining to eliminate discontentedness, you need to eliminate cravings, desires, attachments. That's what's going to train the mind to be able to get rid of the discontentedness is you need to eliminate the cravings, desires, attachments. You're going to learn how to do that this week through the Eightfold Path, because the Fourth Noble Truth is explaining that the path to eliminating discontentedness is the Eightfold Path. This is the complete perfect plan that's going to help you to understand how to eliminate your discontent feelings. So that's why you need to learn it inside and out, backwards and forwards. This is what's going to help you to eliminate your craving, desires, attachments. And the first step of right view is helping you to establish the right view that your mind is causing its own discontentedness. What the unenlightened mind will tend to do is when you get angry or frustrated or any other discontent feeling is to blame it on somebody else is you are making me angry or you are frustrating me or that music is annoying me when in reality it's your own cravings, desires, attachments that's doing that. So if you have wrong view, you will blame other people for the discontent feelings that you're experiencing. Whereas if you establish right view, then you can take responsibility and accountability for your discontent feelings. It's not about who's wrong or right or who's at fault or who's to blame. It's not about that. That's not what the Buddha is sharing with you. He's just sharing with you why your mind is experiencing discontentedness. Because when you understand the cause, then you understand the elimination. You can actually experience a real breakthrough and actually solve your discontent feelings. But as long as you don't know what's causing your anger and your sadness and frustration, you won't be able to solve it. You'll continue to be angry over and over and over and over and over again. And when we have wrong view, we'll tend to push people away out of our life. That's called aversion. 
or you might tend to be angry or bitter or hostile or aggressive in your speech or your actions towards other people, or you might put your expectations on people trying to control them to do things your way because the mind's trying to get its cravings fulfilled and the mind thinks if I can just get people to do things my way, then everything would be perfect because you get those pleasant feelings. But the problem with that is there's 8 billion people in the world. You can't control 8 billion people. And you can't train 8 billion people to do things your way. And there's more people being born every day. So the thing that you can do is you can accept responsibility for your own feelings and then train your own mind. By accepting responsibility and being able to see the truth that your mind is causing these discontent feelings, then you can actually take action to fix them. Because if your mind is causing them, then you can actually fix them. So this is right view, and I went through this very thoroughly last week, and I've done this in other classes as well, where I helped you to establish right view and being able to see the truth. And then you need to practice it in such a way that for now and forever, you look inward and you become introspective. Rather than looking who to blame for your discontent feelings, you look to identify your own cravings. And now when you identify your cravings, you can actually eliminate them and escape the discontentedness that you're experiencing. So once you understand right view, then it's time to build on that to understand right intention. Using the words of the Buddha, the Buddha shares, in what monks is right intention? The intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, the intention of harmlessness. This monks is called right intention. So there's three aspects to right intention, renunciation, non-ill will, and harmlessness. What renunciation is, is training the mind to be interested and willing to let go and give up its unwholesomeness, to eliminate its false beliefs and false perceptions of reality. Whereas if you keep clinging, you keep holding on to things, then your mind's going to continue to experience discontentedness. But if you can have the right thinking or the right thought or the right intention of being willing to let go and give up the mind's false beliefs and false perceptions, then you can actually get to liberation. But if you keep holding on to what the mind has, thinking that you're so smart, you're so intelligent, you know how to do everything in the world, and everybody else is the problem, then you're not going to be able to train your mind and acquire wisdom to move beyond these discontent feelings. So one of the very first false beliefs that an individual needs to get rid of and eliminate is the false belief that other people are causing you to be angry. And you're not eliminating your beliefs based on blind faith or anything like that. And you're not replacing your false belief with other beliefs. Instead, what you're doing is you're getting to wisdom that you're learning teachings, you're reflecting on them to independently verify them, and you're practicing to be able to see the truth so you can get to wisdom and there's no longer any beliefs in the mind, that you don't believe anything. Instead, you know the truth and what the truth actually is. And that comes through renunciation, being willing to let go, realizing that if your mind's still irritated or agitated or annoyed or experiencing any of those discontent feelings, there are certain things about the world you haven't learned yet. And when you learn those things and you train your mind, you can then get past these discontent feelings and move to this peaceful and joyful mental state. The mind can evolve. The mind can grow and mature. Then the second aspect of right intention is having the intention of non-ill will. 
This is a double negative, so non-ill will is the same thing as good will. What ill will is, is animosity, bitterness, anger, hatred, and those lesser versions like frustration or hostility or things like this. So non-ill will is the opposite of those things, which is good will. And this is loving kindness or this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. This active good will without judging other beings is having this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And then this comes together with the intention of harmlessness, where you're not capable of causing harm to others. You're not causing harm and you're not capable. You're disinterested in causing harm to others. Harm would be to harm others through your intentions, your speech, or your actions, or even your livelihood, as you're going to hear today. So if you're causing harm to others, if you have this ill will and you have this interest to harm others, as you put harm out into the world, this harm is going to come back to you. Because when you're bitter and harsh and hostile to others, they're going to be the same way with you. So if you cultivate the right intention or the right thinking or the right thought of non-ill will and harmlessness, where you're disinterested in causing harm to others and you have this genuine interest in seeing others be well, now you have a real foundation in which to build on and build on your moral conduct in your mental discipline to then be able to move the mind towards enlightenment. So let me pause here and see if you guys have any questions on right view or right intention before I move into the next section of the Eightfold Path. You can ask those by putting them into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Okay, I'm not seeing any other questions anywhere. So I'll go ahead and move to the next part of the Eightfold Path. The next part of the Eightfold Path is right speech, right action, and right livelihood. This is the moral conduct section. And this is why it's so important to have right view and right intention. That if you thought everybody else was the problem, then why would you ever work on your moral conduct? Or if you had the intention of being harmful, where you're interested in harming other beings, why would you ever improve your moral conduct? So that wisdom section of right view and right intention is really laying a foundation to now understand the moral conduct and why it's important for you to improve your moral conduct. So the moral conduct section is based on the natural law of gamma. In fact, practically everything the Buddha ever taught is based on the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result. Some people refer to this as karma, which is the Sanskrit version of this word. The Pali version in the original teachings of the Buddha are in Pali is gamma. If this word translated to one English word, I would just translate it as that and use that English word. But unfortunately, there isn't one English word that refers to gamma. So I still need to use this Pali word. Oftentimes, people think of this as punishment and rewards or something mystical or magical or something like that. Or there's maybe some being that is controlling who gets punished and who gets rewarded or this black cloud following you around. That's not what the natural law of gamma is. It's purely cause and effect or action and result, essentially a sequencing of events. There's some cause and that's going to lead to an effect or there's some action that's going to lead to a result the results of your decisions every decision you make is going to have some effect or every decision you make is going to have some result so when you make unwise decisions 
it's going to lead to some unwholesome result. But when you have wisdom, you can make wise decisions that lead to wholesome results. And we did this with the natural law of gravity. As we were growing up, we lacked wisdom of this natural law of gravity. So we made unwise decisions that produced unwholesome results. We fell down, we hit our head, we bumped our elbow because we didn't understand to tie our shoes. We didn't understand to look at the surface of the street or the sidewalk. And we bounced around as kids with all this excitement. So as we gained wisdom of this natural law of gravity, we started making wiser decisions that led to wholesome results. And that natural law of gravity, it affects us whether we know about it or not. When we were one years old, two years old, three years old, and so forth, we didn't understand the natural law of gravity. We didn't even know it existed, but it still affected us. The natural law of gamma is the same way. It's going to affect you whether you're aware of it or not. And if you lack wisdom of this natural law, then you will make unwise decisions and experience unwholesome results coming back to you. But by you improving your wisdom, making wise decisions based in the natural law of gamma, you will then experience wholesome results because it's your life, your decisions, and your results. Everything you experience in your life is based on decisions that you're making. So if you can cultivate wisdom around this natural law, then you can make wise decisions that will then produce wholesome results. So as you're learning the moral conduct section, it's important to not think about what the Buddha taught as rules or commandments or that he's trying to force you or convince you to do anything. Instead, he's just exposing you to the natural law of gamma. And if you'd like to learn it and you'd like to understand it and then practice it, you can see the truth for yourself that what he's teaching is the truth. So as I go, I'm going to be helping you to learn, to reflect, doing that independent verification, and then you can understand how to practice and make wiser decisions about your moral conduct. So this first one on the moral conduct section, which is the third step of the Eightfold Path, the Buddha shares, in what monks is right speech? Refraining from lying, refraining from slander, refraining from harsh speech refraining from frivolous speech. This is called right speech. So there's four aspects of right speech here in the Eightfold Path, which is a certain layer of detail around speech. Now during the lifetime of the Buddha, they refer to this as speech because that's all there was was speech. But we might think about this as right communication because we have text messaging, we have phone calls, we have social media posts and all these other ways to communicate. So here when the Buddha is giving you guidance on right speech, it's important to ensure all your communication is using right speech. So when he says refraining from lying, you don't just believe this. You learn like, okay, well, he's saying that it's unwise to lie. That's what he's sharing. So now you start reflecting on it. When you've lied in the past, has it produced wholesome results for you? Or when other people lie to you, how do you feel about that when people lie to you and you discover their lies? So that shows you that when people lie and they're untruthful, that it produces unwholesome results. Then you look at slander or gossip. This is like when you're trying to damage somebody's reputation or some organization or company or group of people through your speech, through having slander and gossip. If you've ever done slander and gossip, what you probably notice is people also slandered and gossiped about you or people got really angry and hostile and bitter with you. 
So if people are slandering and gossiping, it's going to produce unwholesome results because it's an unwise decision to go out there and slander and gossip. Even if it's true, even if what you're sharing is true, if you're damaging people's reputation, then you're injuring them and now they're going to be interested in injuring you. You can look at situations where maybe somebody is a news reporter and they're damaging someone's reputation through the news and now they might get murdered. I'm not saying that's what should happen. That's just the natural law of gamma, that if you're slandering or you're gossiping, this is going to produce situations where you can get in fights, you can get injured, you can get murdered, people can gossip and slander about you. This is the results of your decisions if you choose to gossip and slander. Then there's harsh speech. This is referring to your tone, your tempo, and your word choice. If you're using a certain tone, tempo, or word choice that is harsh and aggressive and bitter, that's what's going to come back to you. By you being harsh to others, people will then be harsh to you. And once again, you can get injured, beat up. You can get murdered from these things. You can get all kinds of difficulties through having harsh speech. And then frivolous speech is also sometimes referred to as idle chatter. This is where you have like a craving to talk and you just want to talk and 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 talk. It's not really a conversation when you're talking with somebody. It's really more you broadcasting. And if you were just broadcasting for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, just having a craving to talk, having frivolous speech, then people are going to be disinterested in listening to you. You're not going to be very influential in your personal and professional relationships. So by you cleaning up this level of detail, ensuring that you're not lying, slandering, having harsh speech or frivolous speech, you'll find that your mind will be more peaceful, it'll be more joyful, your relationships will improve, but there's more work to do here with right speech or right communication. So there's other teachings that plug into this, and one of them I'm sharing here called the five factors of well-spoken speech. Here the Buddha is explaining five individual factors that you should ensure that you're practicing as part of your communication and your speech. He talks about speaking at the proper time, what you say is true, you speak gently, beneficially, and with a mind of loving kindness. And in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, Volume 1, you can see in Chapter 5 where I detail each of these, explaining what they are. That speaking at the right time is ensuring that you're not interrupting people, because there you can see that when people interrupt you, you don't like it, so it would be wise for you to not interrupt others. You can see where when your mind is angry or frustrated, if you've ever talked and said things that it came out very angry and bitter. So you'd like to make sure your mind, it's the right time to talk, meaning your mind's peaceful, that you're not having this bitterness and hostility in the mind. And the third aspect of speaking at the proper time is making sure it's the proper time for other people to listen to what it is that you're going to be sharing. Because if somebody comes home from work and say you're at home with your parents or your life partner or, or roommates or something like this, and somebody walks in and you jump on them right away and start talking to them, this is not going to go over very well. You would like them to come in, put their bags down, maybe get some water, something to eat. And then you might ask them, you know, is this a good time to talk? Or would it be possible for us to talk about this important topic? So ensuring that it's the proper time will set the stage for you to be able to have a very healthy conversation because you're not interrupting, your mind is prepared to talk, it's the right time, and it's the right time for the other person to talk. And then you would like to speak the truth, which we just talked about as part of the 
core teaching of right speech. Because if you speak the truth, then you don't have to worry about what you're saying to one person versus another. If you're lying, your mind's going to have to keep those lies straight. What did you say to one person? What did you say to the other? This can cause obsession in the mind. You wouldn't be able to get to a peaceful and joyful mental state if you're having to keep your lies straight from one person to the other. So speaking the truth will ensure that your mind can be at ease because you know that you're always speaking the truth. And then speaking gently is that tone, tempo, and word choice paying close attention to that. And I gave some examples in the book to be able to help you understand speaking with the proper tone, tempo, and word choice. Because speaking gently is going to ensure that you're not being bitter and harsh and hostile towards people. And then you'd like to speak beneficially. This is ensuring that there's a purpose behind your speech, that you're not having that craving to talk and just having frivolous speech or idle chatter, that there's some benefit behind what it is that you're talking with your friends or your family members or your coworkers about. Then the fifth one is having a mind of loving kindness. This is the opposite of inner hate. What loving kindness is, is this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, this active goodwill. If you speak with a mind of inner hate, that's going to come out through your word choices, your tone, your tempo. And now it's going to cause harm and the harm can come back to you. So by speaking at the right time, what you say is true, it's gentle, it's beneficial, and it's with a mind of loving kindness, you'll be starting to establish what we refer to here in Thailand as barami. This is a Thai word that we use. It's called barami. What this means is the one who people listen to. If you have barami, it means that people listen to you and you're influential in your community. Here in Thailand and a lot of the villages, there'll be certain people that people know have barami. So if you're having an issue or you're having a problem, you might go to that person who has barami. It means they're quite wise and they're quite successful in their life. So you can go and ask them for guidance or support or some suggestion about your life. So if you're interested in establishing barami so that you can be influential and helpful in your family, in your community, at work, if you speak in this way with the five factors of well-spoken speech, you'll be able to establish barami. And it's going to take you time because you haven't been speaking this way in the past. So it's going to take you time, six months, a year, two years, three years, to build your practice up to this. And then as you practice this more and more, people will start to think of you in a wise way and they will start looking to you as being influential. So this learning on the five factors of well-spoken speech, you don't just believe it. You start reflecting on it. Start looking at conversations that haven't gone so well for you, where there was some unwholesome results or some unwholesome outcome. And you can track it and you can see that either you and or the other person wasn't practicing these five factors. You were either speaking at the wrong time, meaning untimely. You were speaking falsehoods. You were speaking harshly, you were speaking unbeneficially, or you were speaking with a mind of hate. And now when you put that out into the world, this conversation didn't go well. You can look over your life and see that because you've experienced those situations. And then you can also look over your life and you can see certain conversations went really well for you. 
And now, even though you didn't know the five factors of well-spoken speech, you can see that you and the other person were practicing those five factors. But now that you know what the five factors are and you can study them and you can dial this into your practice more and more closely, now you can start to intentionally practice these five factors and experience improved results in your life. There's a lot of content in the chapter five under right speech because we do so much communication and there's the potential to harm with our communication. So I put a lot of details in the book around right speech or right communication. These are just a few of those details where I talk about speaking polite, kind, friendly, and respectful and other things like that. I encourage you to read that if you haven't already and be sure that you refer back to it as you need help with right speech. Then the Buddha talks about right action. This is all about our bodily actions. He says, in what monks is right action? Refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what is not given, refraining from sexual misconduct. This is called right action. So here he's giving three very impactful bodily actions that if you make the decision to either do these things or not do these things, then you will experience the results. So if you choose to kill, then people are gonna be interested in harming you, right? So you can get injured, you can get killed yourself, you could go to jail. If you're killing, there's a certain amount of anger and hatred, even if you're killing a mosquito or a spider or something like this, there has to be a certain amount of anger and ill will in the mind. So by you choosing to practice the first precept where you're living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings, you can train your mind to eliminate and eradicate anger and hatred. And the same thing about stealing and sexual misconduct, you can independently reflect on this and see if you've ever done these things, then you can see where it produced unwholesome results in your life. So the Buddha is giving you three very impactful decisions. And when we study the five precepts two weeks from now in chapter seven, you're going to see an expanded understanding of these three aspects that he's teaching here because he provides more wisdom and more words to really help illuminate what it is that he's sharing here. But here he's just summarizing it and pointing to the five precepts because those plug in here. And you're going to get a lot more detail around this. But notice he doesn't say, don't walk up to somebody and punch them in the face, right? He's not giving you a complete list of every bodily action that would cause harm. He doesn't say, you know, don't take your suitcase and roll it down the aisle of a plane and bump into people's knees and run over their feet. He doesn't say those things because planes weren't invented, right? There's all kinds of bodily actions that we can do that would be harmful to others. So with the right intention of practicing harmlessness and now coupling it with your speech and your actions where you're not interested in causing harm through your bodily actions, you can go about the world and be sure that you're not causing harm through any bodily actions, no matter what it is. If you walked up to someone and punched them in the face, they'd probably punch you back or they'd have a knife or they'd have a gun or their friends or family would attack you. So the Buddha is not giving you a comprehensive list here. He's just cluing you into some very significant ones. And let me just give you a heads up on the sexual misconduct because sometimes people see that and they're like, well, hey, what is sexual misconduct? You're going to learn about this in two weeks when the Buddha explains exactly what sexual misconduct is. What he talks about is sexual conduct that harms others, like having sex with minors or going outside of a relationship that you currently have 
or having sex with somebody who else they're in a, in a relationship with somebody else things like this maybe like rape or sex without consent he describes this because this is harmful but he doesn't talk about same gender relationships as being harmful nowadays more and more people are starting to understand this that if a man and a woman are choosing to have sex with each other they're in a loyal loving consenting relationship with each other they're not causing harm to anyone and the same thing is true about a man and a man or a woman and a woman they're not causing harm to anyone so therefore harm isn't going to come back to them and if you understand the universal truth of impermanence then you understand that it's impossible for every man to be interested in having sex with a female or for every female to be interested in having sex with a male if every male was interested in having sex with a female that would be permanence but we understand we live in a world of impermanence if every female was interested in having sex with a male again that would be permanence and that doesn't exist because we live in a world that is impermanent so when the buddha describes sexual misconduct he doesn't talk about same gender relationships and these were occurring during his lifetime as well all throughout history people have been having sex with the same gender and opposite genders because of the universal truth of impermanence it's not possible for every being to be interested in having sex with the opposite gender so here with right action you're learning to purify your actions so that you're not causing harm through any bodily action whatsoever and there's other bodily actions that the buddha talks about as well in other teachings he talks about substances that cause heedlessness promoting this mind of unattentiveness unawareness or carelessness in the mind or he also talks about gambling as actions that can cause harm and you can reflect on these and see the truth and understand that they're not rules or commandments he's explaining to you the natural law of gamma of cause and effect about how you can cause harm through your bodily actions then there's right livelihood this is the fifth step of the eightfold path this is where you're learning about your livelihood he says in what monks is right livelihood here monks the noble disciple having given up wrong livelihood keeps himself by right livelihood so here he's just talking very generally right so the first thing you would ask yourself is well what's a livelihood what a livelihood is is how you choose to sustain your life in the world your job or your occupation or if you're a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad or something like this and the buddha provides teachings in other places where he explains what right livelihood is here's one of those here he talks about these five trades or these five businesses that you could do that would cause harm to others whereas if you have business and weapons living beings meat substances that cause heedlessness or poisons you're sustaining your life and getting an income based on causing harm to others so let's take one of these and reflect on it because here you can do a little bit of learning and understand these five trades but then you'd like to reflect on them and see is this actually true or not so if you sold substances that cause heedlessness if you stood on the street corner and you were selling cocaine and heroin and methamphetamine and things like this you're selling that into the neighborhood and now people's minds are becoming more and more heedless people are going around stealing in order to support their habit or they're being aggressive and hostile things like this there's all kinds of difficulties that introducing substances into a community are going to ravage that community so if you choose to do that and you're sustaining your livelihood off of that 
then you're making an unwise decision because now you can get beat up, you can get robbed, you can get murdered, you can be put in jail, you can even get addicted to your own substances. So these are harms that are gonna come back to you as a result of your unwise choice to sell substances that cause heedlessness. But it's important to understand that the natural law of gamma is a much higher law than human laws. The human laws in most places it's illegal to sell things like cocaine or heroin or crystal methamphetamine, right? But this is referring to all substances that cause heedlessness. So if you were to work at a liquor store, for example, even though by the governmental law, it's not illegal, the government says, yeah, go be a cashier at a liquor store or go mop the floors at a liquor store. You're able to do that and you're able to earn a living doing that in terms of your money. But would it be wise to do that? Because oftentimes places that sell alcohol and liquor, they get robbed and people get beat up and people even get murdered. So you could just be cleaning the floor of a liquor store and somebody could walk in and attempt to steal the liquor and the alcohol or steal the money or beat you up or murder you. And this is because of your unwise decision to work in a business that is selling substances that cause heedlessness. So you could go through each of these five and you'd be able to see how these five trades or these five businesses are causing harm in the world and harm is going to come back to you. You can find evidence in the world to be able to see that. And then you would like to select a livelihood that is not one of these five. And then the Buddha gives additional guidance beyond this in other parts of his teachings where he talks about how you're performing your livelihood. For example, I could be a politician which isn't one of those five trades that he talks about being unwise. A politician isn't going to cause harm if they're just being a politician, right? But if I was scheming, meaning I was corrupt in my practice of being a politician, now I'm causing harm through my corruption. Maybe I'm stealing money or I'm doing backhanded deals. Now I can have a situation where I lose the opportunity to be a politician. And maybe if I've invested 20 or 30 years of my life into this, now I can't get elected any longer. And now I'm not able to support myself or my family. And the same thing is true with other occupations, whether you're a police officer or any other thing, maybe even if I was a doctor, but maybe I'm scheming, I'm corrupt, maybe I'm stealing medicines from the hospital, right? I'm causing harm where I'm going out and now I'm selling these medicines on the street. This is all going to cause difficulties within your livelihood. Flattery, this is insincere comments just to get people to buy things from you. So if you were a business owner or you were working in a business and you were making insincere comments just trying to flatter people, people are going to be able to see through that and then it's going to infect you in that as people see your insincerity, they're going to be disinterested in purchasing your products and services and now it's going to cause difficulties with your livelihood. What hinting is, is not being clear and direct in the work that you do. If you kind of hint around, maybe you're on a project team, you're not being very clear, very concise, you're just kind of hinting about certain things and not being very direct in your communication, this is gonna cause difficulties in your livelihood. 
If you were belittling your coworkers or your competition, people don't like it when you're degrading and you're disparaging other people. So by you degrading and disparaging other people, your customers, your coworkers, your boss, other people around you, they're not gonna be interested in having you perform that livelihood and you'll find difficulties in sustaining your life if you're belittling individuals or companies, your competition, things like that. Then there's pursuing gain with gain. What this is, is if you were to take a job where all you cared about was the money and you were just chasing after the money, you're not going to be able to sustain your life this way in a way that's going to promote peacefulness and joy in your mind. Because if you're just pursuing money and you don't really care about the product or service that you're offering, you're gonna feel very unmotivated and very unenthusiastic. For a while, you'll have that craving where you'll chase the money, but then after that burns out and you realize that money is just money, it's not gonna bring you ultimate happiness, now you're gonna feel very unmotivated and very unenthused to go to this job each day. So what the Buddha is guiding you to understand is how to produce this peaceful and joyful mind and create a peaceful and joyful life for yourself where you can have motivation and encouragement and enthusiasm each day. Whereas if you were just going somewhere to collect a paycheck, you're gonna feel like you really bored and mundane going to this job every single day. So he guides you in this teaching and in other teachings where he goes deeper into right livelihood, helping you to understand how to establish a livelihood that you can be enthused about. You can get to the point where it doesn't even feel like work that you're so motivated and enthused about the work that you do that you can't even dream of doing anything else. That you enjoy your work so much that even if you didn't get paid for it, you would still do this job because you enjoy it that much. Of course, you need to collect money in order to support yourself and buy the basic necessities that you need, but if you can get yourself to a livelihood that you just enjoy so thoroughly that you would do it even if you didn't get paid for it, then you found the right livelihood. And there's guidance beyond what I'm just sharing here in volume 12, chapter 14, where you can see what the Buddha is teaching you on right livelihood. So if you're interested in changing your livelihood or switching it up and or maybe purifying your livelihood more readily, you might go look at volume 12, chapter 14, because there, that's where you're going to see more of the Buddhist teachings on right livelihood. So here, just summarizing the moral conduct section of right speech, right action, and right livelihood, right speech is getting to a point where you're not causing any harm through your verbal conduct or any communication, like text, chat, your social media posts, your emails, all of these things should be harmless. Because if you went into a job interview and you practice right speech perfectly, and these people are very enthusiastic about hiring you, and they went and checked your social media, and they saw that you were aggressive and hostile in your social media, you're probably not gonna get the job. So you would like to have all communication be practicing right speech. And then right action is ensuring that you're not causing harm through your bodily actions or your conduct through your bodily decisions and the actions that you make based on your bodily conduct. So these should all be harmless. And the Buddha gives you those three to think about and practice, but then there's others as well that you would like to be aware of as you're moving about the world that you're not causing harm. And then your livelihood, same thing, is not causing harm through how you choose to sustain your life. That ensure that you're sustaining your life through not causing any harm to others. And this is going to purify your moral conduct, that you're not putting out harm through your speech or actions in your livelihood, 
and then you won't experience harm coming back to you. You won't experience unwholesome results because you're no longer making unwise decisions. Instead, if you fully understand more and more and dial in your practice with wisdom of the natural law of gamma, now you can make wise decisions that produce wholesome results for yourself. So let me see if you guys have any questions on this section of the Eightfold Path. Remember, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Okay, so now I have a question coming in from Mayu Lee on Facebook. She's saying, I'm very weak when it comes to the five factors of well-spoken speech, especially to my family with using harsh words. The harsh words comes out before the mind is aware. Is this coming from my subconscious? What can I do to clean out my subconscious mind? So when you have craving, desire, attachment in your relationships, it's going to be a lot more challenging for you to practice something like right speech because you're wanting your children or you're wanting your partner or your mother or your father to be a certain way. You're having that craving, desire, attachment. So with other people that you're not attached to, it can be very easy for you to practice the five factors of well-spoken speech. So you practice that really well with people that you're not attached to, learning how to do that, and then that can bubble over into your relationships where you do have attachment. But then all the while, you're using breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity to bring down your cravings, desires, attachments, and you're using loving kindness meditation to bring up your loving kindness where you have less anger and hostility towards others. So this is coming from the pollutions of the mind, the central desire, the ill will, the conceit, the things like this, those 10 fetters that I talked about a few classes ago. So as long as you have craving, desire, attachment in your relationships, you'll find it very challenging. So you practice what I'm going to teach you now in the mental discipline section to improve your mind so you can do better with your right speech. But then also, in addition to the things you learn in the mental discipline section, you can do something that the Buddha teaches where before you say something, you should reflect on that and decide, is what I'm about to say going to cause harm to others? Is it going to cause harm to me? Or is it going to cause harm to both? And now you reflect on it before you actually say something. So you build your wisdom around that. Then while you're speaking, you reflect, is this causing harm to others? Is it causing harm to me? Or is it causing harm to both? And then after you're done speaking, you reflect, has this caused harm to others, to me, or to both? And now you're cultivating wisdom around right speech. And if you're speaking and you notice halfway through your sentence that this is harmful, cut it off. That's what you're going to learn next in the mental discipline section is cut that off. Even your mid-sentence, just cut it off. Or say it's on the tip of your tongue, cut it off. Don't allow the mind to say that. So by doing this reflection before speaking, while speaking, and after speaking, you can build your wisdom more and more around right speech, and then you'll be more readily able to practice it. As you're bringing your practice up with right speech, it can be challenging. It can be a real struggle and difficult. But if you stay committed to it and you break through more and more, you'll be able to bring up your practice of right speech and you'll be able to see that it's more and more easy for you to practice right speech. So yes, when you have craving, desire, attachment, particularly to your family, that's typical attachments that you might have, you will find that it's harder to practice right speech. But the more you do it and you stay consistent with it, then you'll be able to find that it becomes easier and easier.
Okay, I'm not seeing any other questions anywhere. So I'm gonna move on to the next section of the Eightfold Path, which is the mental discipline section. This is where we're gonna learn right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And you can see how to really hone the mind. Because what you're doing here with the Eightfold Path is you're dialing in these dials closer and closer. It's kind of like if you had a speaker system and you had some eight dials that if you dialed these dials in closer and closer, you get a better and better quality of sound out of these speakers. The Eightfold Path is the same way. As you dial these in closer and closer, you're gonna get a better quality mind where the mind's more peaceful and joyful, focused and concentrated. Your relationships are improving because you're getting this pollution out of your mind. So you're dialing in these eight steps, your wisdom, your moral conduct, and now your mental discipline closer and closer so that as you develop your life practice, now your mind can perform more optimally. But when you haven't trained your mind in this way, it's not gonna perform optimally. So that's why you might have a lack of memory, you have difficulties in your relationships, interacting with other beings, because your mind just doesn't have the wisdom and it hasn't been trained in this way. So now as we move into the mental discipline, understand that this is honing your mind, but all the other steps are doing the same thing. You need to dial all eight of these in closer and closer, and that's why you'll need to revisit this multiple times in your journey to enlightenment. So now with right effort, I'm gonna read the words of the Buddha for you, but then I'm gonna break it down and help you to understand what he's actually teaching. Here he shares, in what monks is right effort? Here, monks, a monk rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind, and strives to prevent the arising of unarisen, evil, unwholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind, and strives to overcome evil, unwholesome mental states that have arisen. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind, and strives to produce unarisen, wholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind, and strives to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. This is called right effort. So there's four right efforts. Some people even call these the right strivings. You need to apply effort to do these things that the Buddha is describing. So here I'll break it down for you so that you can see what he's actually sharing, these four right efforts. The first one is he's saying to prevent unwholesome mental states that have not arisen from arising in the mind. So here, if there's certain unwholesome mental states that are not currently in your mind, he's saying prevent those from ever coming into the mind. Apply the effort to ensure that these unwholesome mental states don't come into the mind. So an example of that might be killing a human being. You probably have no interest in killing another human being. It's probably not something that's even circulating in your mind. It's not currently in your mind. But you understand with wisdom, it would be unwise to do that. So since this unwholesome mental state of having a craving to kill a human being is not in your mind, the Buddha is saying prevent that from ever coming into the mind by applying the right effort to not allow it to ever come into the mind.
This is just one example. There are certain unwholesome things that are not currently in your mind right now, and you would like to apply the effort to not allow them to come into the mind. And then two, abandon unwholesome mental states that have arisen in the mind. There are certain unwholesome mental states that are currently in your mind, and you're gonna to need to be aware of what those are and then apply the right effort to eliminate those out of the mind. An example might be if you're in an existing relationship and you have a craving to have sexual contact outside of this relationship, you know that that would be unwise. It's gonna cause harm. So if you notice that that craving arises in the mind, that you have this unwholesome mental state in the mind, the Buddha is saying apply the right effort to eliminate that out of the mind. Or if you have anger or frustration or irritation that arises in the mind, these are unwholesome mental states that have arisen in the mind. And the Buddha is saying, abandon that, apply the effort to eliminate it. And once again, there's gonna be certain unique unwholesome mental states that are currently in your mind that you're gonna to need to be aware of and then eliminate them. Number three, produce unarisen wholesome mental states to arise in the mind. This is where as you learn about certain wholesome mental states on the path to enlightenment, that you realize you don't currently have those wholesome mental states in your mind, you would like to apply the effort to bring those into the mind, to cultivate them and develop them in the mind. So here, some examples might be if you know that you're not a very generous person, say that you have certain amount of selfishness in your mind, and you realize as part of the path to enlightenment that practicing generosity is gonna train your mind to let go and eliminate craving, desire, attachment. It's gonna help you eliminate the discontent feelings. So if you practice generosity of giving and sharing more than is strictly required in any given situation, your time, your effort, your energy, and your resources without any interest of anything in return, no expectation of anything at all, now, if you know that your mind tends to be selfish and you don't practice generosity, you would like to apply the effort to bring that into the mind, and that's going to help to cultivate the mind. Or compassion might be another example, where compassion is the concern for the misfortune of others. If you know that your mind is quite indifferent when you see people suffering and having difficulties, then your mind might be lacking compassion. Let's just say you don't have compassion in the mind and you learn about this compassion as part of this journey to enlightenment. Well, now you're gonna to need to apply the effort to bring that concern for the misfortune of others into the mind because it's not currently in the mind. That's the third aspect of right effort. The fourth aspect is to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not allowing them to fade away and work to increase their growth in the mind. So this is any wholesome mental qualities that are currently in the mind, you're gonna to need to apply the effort to support them, encourage them, bring them to full growth and full perfection in the mind. Some examples might be something like loving kindness, which is the exact opposite of anger and hatred. You might currently have loving kindness in the mind where you do have a genuine interest in seeing others be well, but it might not be fully developed you might have loving kindness for some beings, but you don't have loving kindness for other beings. There might be certain beings that you have frustration or annoyance towards. So the Buddha is saying apply the right effort to fully cultivate this loving kindness in the mind where you can bring it to full growth and perfection. Sympathetic joy might be another example. Sympathetic joy is where you have joy for others' success 
even if you didn't contribute to it. This is the exact opposite of jealousy or envy. So if you notice that you do have sympathetic joy, that when something happens for somebody that is beneficial for them, you're like, oh, wow, that's really great. But maybe in some situations you have some jealousy or some envy. Well, you're going to need to apply the right effort to more fully cultivate this sympathetic joy in the mind. And this is applying the right effort because it's something that's currently in the mind that needs to be grown and developed and brought to full perfection. So these are examples of certain things that you might be experiencing. But what you need to eliminate from your mind or what you need to bring into your mind and develop, this is going to be unique to you. But these are examples that I'm giving you to help you understand what right effort is. You're preventing unwholesome mental states from arising. You're abandoning any unwholesome mental states that are currently in the mind. You're producing wholesome mental states to come into the mind mental states that don't currently exist. Then the fourth one is any wholesome states that are currently in the mind, you're supporting them, encouraging them, helping them to further grow in the mind. So this is right effort. Now right effort needs to be practiced with right mindfulness, which is the next step. If it wasn't for the next step, you wouldn't be able to practice right effort. So you're gonna need the right mindfulness in order to apply the effort what right mindfulness is, in general, is awareness of mind. But the Buddha is going to teach you here the four foundations of mindfulness. So I'm going to read this for you, and then I'm going to teach you what right mindfulness is. In what monks is right mindfulness? Here, monks, a monk resides reflecting on body as body, dedicated, clearly aware, and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. He resides reflecting on feelings as feelings, dedicated, clearly aware, and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. He resides reflecting on mind as mind, dedicated, clearly aware, and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. He resides reflecting on mental objects as mental objects, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. This is called right mindfulness. So here, there's four aspects of right mindfulness. He talks about body as body, feelings as feelings, mind as mind, mental objects as mental objects. And here, what right mindfulness is in general is awareness of mind. This is where you might start your journey to enlightenment, is understanding that mindfulness is awareness of mind. But then over time, you're going to need to deepen that to understand the four foundations of mindfulness. In the unenlightened state and when we're off the path to enlightenment, we typically aren't aware of what's going on in the mind. You know, we're just kind of plowing through life, you know, knocking down trees, burning up the forest, wondering why we're smelling so much smoke, who lit the fire, you know, we're looking around, blaming other people. We don't have awareness of mind. So you're going to need to cultivate this awareness of mind, which is going to come into play with the next step, which is right concentration. You're going to need to cultivate this awareness of the mind, where you can have awareness of what are the unwholesome qualities that are currently in your mind, and what are the wholesome qualities that are currently in the mind so that you can apply right effort to eliminate those unwholesome qualities and you can cultivate the wholesome qualities. So you're going to need this awareness of mind, which you develop through right concentration and specifically through meditation. 
But then as you journey on the path to enlightenment, you're going to need to deepen your understanding of right mindfulness and understand the four foundations of mindfulness. This is where the Buddha is talking about body as body, feelings as feelings, mind as mind, mental objects as mental objects. What body as body is, is he's describing the life cycle of what the discontentedness is going to be experienced as you're having craving, desire, attachment in the mind. What are you going to experience in terms of this discontentedness arising? So first, what you're going to notice when there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, whether it's a conditioned pleasant feeling, painful feeling, or neither painful nor pleasant, there's going to be some bodily sensation that is occurring before it becomes a feeling in the mind. So for something like anger, for example, you might have a, a tingling sensation in the body moving up from the feet towards the head, or you might have a tightening of the chest. You might have some pain around the heart. You might have some tightening in the throat. You might have some heat in the face or pressure in the skull. These are bodily sensations associated with anger. Or if you've ever experienced shyness, you might have felt a queasiness in your stomach. So each individual feeling is going to have some bodily sensations that are occurring before the mind experiences a feeling. So now, if it moves past the bodily sensations, now you're going to experience the conditioned feeling. Now the anger has just entered the mind, and now it's a feeling, or the frustration, or annoyance, or agitation. And then if you allow that to persist, it's going to affect the condition of the mind, where now for a few days, a few weeks, maybe a week or two, your mind is generally angry and agitated because the mind is holding on to this experience. So now the mind is having this condition of mind affected from its craving, desires, attachments. This discontentedness has arisen as a bodily sensation. You then experience the feeling coming into the mind, and now it affects the condition of your mind more long-term for multiple hours or days or a week or so. And then it feeds what's called a mental object. The mental object is like a deeply rooted container in the mind. And in this example of anger, it would be ill will, where there's this deeply rooted container of ill will in the mind that the mind's holding on to. And now what you do with this information of the four foundations of mindfulness is you can get ahead of the curve. You can eliminate your discontentedness by having right mindfulness and applying right effort. As you are aware that there's these bodily sensations occurring associated with discontent feelings arising, you can cut off and let go of those bodily sensations, never allowing the mind to experience a conditioned feeling. Because what the unenlightened mind is doing is it's wired to have these conditioned feelings. Oh, it's sunny outside. I'm going to get happy. Ah, there's the happiness. Oh, it's raining outside. Oh, I'm going to get sad and angry or frustrated. So the mind is wired to have these conditioned feelings where you're basing your inner feelings on some condition. But if you can be aware of those bodily sensations associated with the conditioned feelings, conditioned pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or neither painful nor pleasant, <clears throat> when you can be aware of those bodily sensations that the mind is about to get a conditioned feeling, it hasn't gotten it yet, but it's about to get it, you can cut it off and let it go as a bodily sensation. You can essentially rewire the mind 
where it's no longer experiencing these conditioned feelings. So that now you can get to the unconditioned mental qualities of peace and joy in others. So as long as you allow the mind to keep experiencing these conditioned feelings, then it's going to keep forming its inner feelings on some condition. So if you can catch it as a bodily sensation and cut it off and let it go there, then you've just saved yourself a whole lot of trouble because your mind isn't experiencing these conditioned feelings anymore. This is equivalent to if you were taking a boat across the ocean and you were out in the middle of the ocean, you would like to prevent the water from ever coming into the boat. Because once the water gets in the boat, you've got a real problem to deal with. But if you can prevent the water from ever getting into the boat, now you can just sail on your journey and get to wherever it is that you're looking to get to. So if you can be aware of those bodily sensations associated with discontent feelings, then you can apply right effort to cut it off and let it go as a bodily sensation, not allowing the mind to experience these conditioned feelings. But if it becomes a feeling, because it will, because you can't just learn this once and immediately start practicing it to perfection, there's a gradual training, gradual practice and gradual progress that you'll experience. So your mind's going to experience some frustration and agitation as you're making your way to enlightenment. You're going to experience some of these conditioned feelings. So you can still cut it off and let it go there as a conditioned feeling. And then trying to get more and more in touch with these bodily sensations so that you can catch it sooner and sooner. So you can cut it off as a bodily sensation. You can cut it off as a feeling. But if you miss it there, then it's going to start affecting the condition of your mind. You might notice for like a few hours or a day or two that your mind is having this general agitation and irritation. And you can cut it off and let it go there. You can redirect the mind and not allowing it to continue to dwell in discontentedness. Because if you continue to allow this to occur, it's feeding these mental objects, these deeply rooted containers. So what you're doing is you're trying to put a blockade on the bodily sensations and cut off and let go of any discontentedness that is arising there. All the while you're working to eliminate these mental objects. You're breaking up the mental object. So in the example of ill will, you're using loving kindness meditation to break that up, uproot it and get it out of the mind. All the while, you're not feeding it any more anger, any more hatred by cutting off and letting go of the bodily sensations. And when you do this enough, eventually you get to the point where no anger ever arises because you've eliminated all the cravings. There is no frustration. There is no agitation. There is no boredom or loneliness or shyness or these other discontent feelings because you've cut off and let go so many times that you've restrained the mind that now you've got discipline and control of the mind. So you'll need to do this for a period of time, but ultimately as you make your progress over the years of the journey to enlightenment, eventually you won't need to do this anymore because the conditions of craving will no longer exist in the mind and you can then experience the peace and joy because there's nothing arising in terms of discontent feelings. Then there's right concentration, which is the eighth step of the Eightfold Path. Here, the words of the Buddha, he's describing what's referred to as the jhanas. These are preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it gets to the first stage of enlightenment. There's four individual jhanas or phases that the mind goes through. And the Buddha describes what they actually are so that you know that your mind's moving into these jhanas. The way that you experience these improved qualities of mind is you put together the entire Eightfold Path. And as you practice that more and more, you'll start experiencing these
these jhanas. So I'm not going to explain to you and read these jhanas here. I teach this in other courses and retreats and things like this because the Buddha is explaining to you the results of practicing the Eightfold Path and what you'll experience. Instead, what I'm going to focus on today is teaching you how to practice right concentration, which the Buddha describes in other parts of his teachings, and those plug into here. But just understand that there's these preliminary phases that your mind will experience as you're putting together all the steps of the Eightfold Path. And we refer to those as jhanas. This is like meditative absorption or mental absorption, where the mind has absorbed a certain amount of the teachings and you're practicing a certain amount of the teachings. But the way to practice right concentration is having a meditation practice and practicing singleness of mind. Developing your daily meditation practice, you're going to need breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. There's two other specialized meditations that are used in unique situations that are in volume one, chapter 11. And I share them with students on a case by case basis as they need them. But everybody's going to need breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. These other two specialized meditations are just on an as needed basis. And you would like to gradually build up your meditation practice to two or three sessions per day for 30 minutes or more. With the breathing mindfulness meditation, you're going to be developing mindfulness or awareness of mind. You're also going to be developing concentration by focusing on the breath with the mind. Anytime the mind moves off the breath, you cut it off and let it go. So you're having mindfulness or awareness of mind that the mind has moved off the breath. And now when you cut it off and let it go, you're getting that discipline and control to be concentrated and focused on the breath. You're not working to eliminate your thoughts. You're going to have occasional thoughts in meditation. You can get to a point where the mind's quiet and still, but you're still going to have occasional thoughts even when the mind is enlightened. But the difference is, is in the unenlightened state, you might be bombarded with thoughts, a lot, a lot of rapid thoughts. Or you might have a thought and you might follow it for a period of time and indulge in that thought before you realize that you've been meditating and you need to bring the mind back. In the enlightened mental state, as soon as you have a thought, you'll know it. You'll be able to bring the mind back to the breath. So you're still going to have thoughts even in the enlightened mental state, but there'll be these periods of quietness and stillness in the mind. So breathing mindfulness meditation is helping you to develop mindfulness, which you're going to need as part of the mental discipline section. And it's helping you to develop concentration while eliminating craving, desire, attachment. The loving kindness meditation is helping you to eliminate anger, hatred, and ill will and cultivate this loving kindness or this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And you would like to gradually build up your meditation practice to two or three sessions per day for 30 minutes or more. And this might take you six months, a year, even two years to fully develop your meditation practice to this amount of frequency. But that's where you're going to see the most benefit. So as you're practicing your daily meditation practice and you're developing that more and more, you need to also practice singleness of mind in daily life. What this is, is this is where you're doing just one thing at a time. Whereas if your mind is rapidly cycling from thing to thing to thing to thing, you're going to not have concentration. You're not going to be able to bring forth your full wisdom of things like right speech. So if you're talking on your phone to your mom, you're watching TV and you're eating food, or if you're eating food and you're watching YouTube videos, 
or if you're typing out an email and you're watching a YouTube video or trying to listen to a YouTube video, your mind is rapidly cycling from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. And then you're going to find that your mind is, has stress and anxiety because it's not able to be focused and concentrated or stable and steady and calm. So when you're talking on the phone, you just talk on the phone. Or if you're watching TV, you just watch TV. Or if you're eating, you just eat. And you might be bored when you're doing this, but you're not gonna solve the boredom through having a YouTube video playing while you're eating. That's just fulfilling your craving for stimulation. The way you solve the boredom is you train your mind to just eat, and that's it. And you're gonna probably be bored for a period of time until you overcome the craving, and then you can just eat and be joyful and content in that situation. But if you continue to be attached to a YouTube video or social media while you're eating, then you can only be having those pleasant feelings when you have the social media. When you're eating by yourself and you're just eating, you're gonna be bored and lonely and feeling other discontent feelings. So you're gonna to need to put the mind in the situation that it doesn't wanna be in, which is just eat or just talk on the phone. Because the mind has this unknowing of true reality or this ignorance or this confusion where it thinks that if you talk on the phone, you watch TV and you eat, you're actually accomplishing more. But you're really not. You're actually elongating the conversation. You're not focused and concentrated on the conversation. You might say things that you regret later. You might even agree to things that you forget about later. And now you don't do those things and you're not reliable and you're not dependable. So you can clean all this up by just focusing on the conversation. And rather than a one hour conversation, it might be 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And then you can get off the phone call and you can be concentrated and handle the things that you needed to handle. Whereas if you have a conversation and you use wrong speech, you're damaging your relationships. You're going to now have to go clean these things up where you clean up your relationship because now you're being seen as being scatterbrained or unaware of the conversation that you're having. You're not focused. So you would like to just do one thing at a time. So if you're in a business meeting and you see your mind is wandering because that mindfulness is going to help you to be able to see your mind is daydreaming in the business meeting. Now you apply right effort cut that off and let it go, bring the mind back to the business meeting and focus with concentration. Or if you're washing the dishes and you see your mind is wandering all over the place, you might cut yourself with a knife because you're not paying attention to what you're doing. So when you see your mind is wandering, you like to cut that off, apply right effort. So with your right mindfulness, having awareness of mind, and you see your mind is wandered, you now bring it back to the present moment and just focus on washing the dishes or whatever it is that you're doing in life. So this is right concentration. So just kind of a summary of the mental discipline section. Right effort is taking the initiative to eliminate unwholesome aspects of the mind and cultivate wholesome qualities in the mind. Right mindfulness is having the awareness of the mind and specifically practicing the four foundations of mindfulness. Right concentration is practicing meditation and developing singleness of mind to experience the jhanas. And all of these are working together because it's your meditation practice that's helping you to develop mindfulness and concentration. And with that mindfulness and concentration in daily life, you then apply effort to eliminate the unwholesome qualities and cultivate the wholesome qualities in the mind. So this is the mental discipline section of the Eightfold Path.
So as you're developing your life practice, you're going to need to develop all these various aspects of your practice. The three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, developing your meditation practice. And I'm going to be helping you do these in this group learning program. But you've got to do the work outside of the classes. And then as you're working on all of those things, you'll start noticing and experiencing the jhanas. Where now, when you start experiencing these improved qualities of mind, it's kind of like the light bulb is flickering and you're starting to experience this joy and this peacefulness, maybe for a few minutes, maybe a few hours, maybe a few days, your mind is quite peaceful. You'll see those qualities of the jhana starting to arise in the mind. That's the time to then start focusing on eliminating the 10 fetters, those 10 individual pollutions in the mind. And I talked about those in a previous class, but of course you can revisit those as your mind starts to experience the jhanas. And be sure that you never, ever, ever give up on your life practice because being complacent and giving up on your life practice is to relegate yourself to continuing to experience anger and frustration and all those discontent feelings for the rest of your life. You're going to continue to feel grief and misery and despair, guilt and shame and fears, boredom and loneliness. Those things are just going to continue in your mind. So I suggest that you don't ever, ever give up on your life practice. Continue to develop it over and over and keep revisiting this Eightfold Path as much as you need to. So let me see if you guys have any questions on anything that I shared here in the mental discipline section of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can raise your hand and ask any questions that you like. Okay, Mayu Lee is asking a question here on Facebook. During my mindfulness meditation, I focus the mind on breath diligently, but I'm unaware as the mind is leaving the breath but able to bring the mind back to the breath. Over time, will I eventually be able to notice as the mind is leaving the breath and stop it from leaving? Based on your experience, how long will that take? So you are noticing, Mayuli, that your mind's moving off the breath because you said that you're bringing it back. It's just that you're noticing it maybe 10 seconds or one minute or two minutes that it's left, right? So you're trying to shave this back sooner and sooner that you're becoming aware that it's left the breath sooner and sooner. And that's like shaving it back. And this is gonna take time. Each person is different. I can't give you a specific amount of time that it would take because each person has a different level of pollution in their mind that's causing this. So depending on the certain cravings that you have, depending on what you're experiencing in your life, each person's gonna experience a different amount of time that it takes to be aware that the minds move off the breath sooner and sooner. So you are aware that it's moved off the breath. You're just trying to become aware of it sooner and sooner. So now with more and more developed practice where you soak the teachings into the mind, you'll become more and more aware of it sooner and sooner. So it's not just in meditation that you're practicing your mindfulness. You'd also like to practice it in daily life too. So now in meditation, that's where you're really developing your mindfulness. But then if you can be practicing things like right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration in your daily life, then your mind is being trained more readily. So even when you're driving down the road, if you don't listen to music and you just focus on driving, this is training your mind to have focus and concentration and practicing mindfulness. Or if you're walking down the street, 
you just focus on walking down the street or if you're talking on the phone. So you can enhance your training of your mind and you're gonna need to do this in order to get to enlightenment. You wouldn't be able to just meditate your way to enlightenment. You're gonna need to meditate, but then you take those qualities of mind that you're producing in meditation and you're applying it in your daily life. And now as you apply it in your daily life, this is where you're getting kind of a full-time job to train your mind. Even when you're dozing off to sleep at night or you're waking up in the morning, you're still practicing mindfulness. That if you're dozing off at sleep at night and you notice an unwholesome thought comes into the mind, cut it off and let it go, right? So you're training your mind at all waking hours. And this is gonna help enhance your meditation. That if you weren't training your mind outside of meditation, then it's gonna take longer for your meditation to become more solid and more stable. So you'd like to look at your practice as being all encompassing and you're practicing these teachings at all times during your day. Okay, we have a question from Sophia on Zoom. Teacher, sometimes I feel dizzy during the meditation and a little bit headache on my back head. Not sure caused by meditation or not. Is these conditions normal? Yes. So this is what's going to happen as you're training your mind. These things are going to occur. They're not permanent, but this is an indication that you're doing things properly, that this is what's actually going to occur. Because as you're training your mind and you're getting rid of the pollutions, the physical structures of the brain are changing. So the brain and the mind are two different things, but as you train your mind, the physical structures of the brain are gonna start changing. So you might feel a little bit dizzy, or you might feel pressure in different parts of your skull. You might even hear the brain actually physically changing. As you continue to train, you'll get past all of that and things will just be solid and stable in your mind. You won't feel that dizziness and the pain or the headaches in your mind anymore. So what's causing this is that you're getting rid of the pollution. The brain's gonna start functioning more optimally and you're gonna notice these changes. So if this is occurring and it becomes unbearable, just stop meditation and rest and take a rest. But this is all a really wonderful indication that you're meditating properly and this is what should be occurring as you start transforming your mind. There's gonna be these changes to the brain. But once you get over that hump, then you'll notice that these things won't occur anymore. So this is completely normal, but it's not permanent. And just keep going forward and you'll see that it'll produce all the changes you need and you won't experience these things anymore. Okay, I'm not seeing any other questions. I see our students from the Philippines are logged in. Nice to see you guys there. All right. All right, well, what I'll do then is I'm just going to end class here by doing what I typically do, which is thank all of you for joining to learn and practice the teachings of the Buddha. Because as you do so, it's helping you, those close to you, and it's helping all of humanity. Because as you practice being less and less harmful in the world, and you're eliminating your anger and hatred and your frustration, this is helping you. It's helping the people close to you because you're not causing harm. And it's helping all of humanity because humanity is becoming a kinder, more loving, more gentle and peaceful society. So I'd like to thank all the students for spending time dedicated to learning and practicing the teachings. Next week in our group learning program on Sunday, we're gonna be in chapter six, which is titled The Middle Way, Walking the Middle Way. This is where you're gonna learn this very simple, 
but yet impactful teaching that is going to help you to develop your life practice. So you have time to be able to read and practice the things that I've shared with you. You're not going to master the Eightfold Path in one week, but you can start bringing this path into your life and bringing it up more and more. And I'm going to be sharing something next week with you that's going to help you to be able to do that called The Middle Way. And remember, you can be reading the book on these as well. And then on Wednesday in the group learning program, I'm going to be in part two of the four-part series on Buddhist chanting. I'm helping students to learn how to do the Buddhist chanting, which will help ease the mind into meditation and out of meditation to get you more beneficial results in your meditation itself. So once again, thank you all for joining for today's class. As you have questions, you can ask them in class. You can post them in the Facebook group. You can send me a private message or you can schedule personal guidance by going to our website. You'll see the links to schedule a personal session where we can meet in Zoom and I will help you. So have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.